Uh, you know, I think I begin uh, pretty much every one of my messages in exactly the same way, and that is by uh, encouraging you or, or inviting you to open your Bibles to such and such a passage, and uh, today's no exception. Uh, I'm going to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 7. I just want to lay a little extra stress on that this morning, because the passage we're looking at today is an especially long passage, and I think you'll get the most out of it uh, if you have your Bible open and you are following along as I read it. We are looking today at the speech of Stephen, all 53 verses of it. So uh, just before I read it to you, because I'm going to read it in its entirety, I have to tell you, not everyone thinks that this is a great speech. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, an Irish playwright and activist from an earlier century, referred to Stephen as a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore. He describes him, he describes his speech as having delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with, with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he. Uh, Martin Debellius, a German theologian and scholar from the 1900s, wrote about the irrelevance of most of this speech. Others have referred to it as rambling, dull, and even incoherent. So now you're especially sold on it, right? Um, I have to tell you, I read through this speech a number of times in preparation for this message, and I think they were dead wrong. Um, it is a long speech, but I want you to keep a couple of things in mind as I read it for you. The first thing to remember is that Stephen's speech is his response to the charges that were brought against him. He's in a trial of sorts, and the charges that were brought against him were stated in verse 13 of chapter 6, um, where it says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against... This holy place, that's the temple, and the law. The second thing to keep in mind as we read this speech is to pay attention to the big themes that Stephen traces throughout the speech. And those themes are related to geography and history, more exciting topics, but especially the repetition of history. So with those things in mind, let me read for you Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53. This is God's word, and this is what it says. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he, gave them, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him 
and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out for he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." 
Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked for, to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Whew. (laughs) So as we, our time is gone. You guys can go have a great week and all of that. Uh, No, as we reflect on all that is said here, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to four big truths or big ideas that we find here. Uh, One about the speech in general, and then three that come out of the speech directly. The first one is that we ought to be prepared to give a reason for the hope within us. This is the general comment about the speech. And I took the language for that point from what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3. He tells us that we ought to, uh, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter tells us what we are to do. Stephen actually shows us this is what it looks like to make a defense, to give a reason for the hope that we have. Scholars refer to Stephen's speech as his apologia, his defense. We get our word apologetics from that word. And the thing to notice about Stephen's defense is that he doesn't seek to defend himself so much as to defend and articulate the gospel. Now, this whole idea of making a defense or contending for the faith seems like it's sort of fallen on hard times. In his book, Contending with Our All, John Piper said this, In every age... There is a kind of person who tries to minimize the importance of truth-defining and truth-defending controversy by saying that prayer, worship, evangelism, missions, and dependence on the Holy Spirit are more important. Who has not heard such rejoinders to controversy? Let's stop arguing about the gospel and get out there and share it with the dying world. Or prayer is more powerful than argument. Or we should rely on the Holy Spirit and not on our reasoning. Or God wants to be worshipped, not discussed. He went on to say, I love the passion for faith and prayer and evangelism and worship behind those statements. But when they are used to belittle gospel-defining, gospel-defending controversy, they bite the hand that feeds them. Now, the subtitle for our series in the book of Acts is the mission and message of Jesus. And we have stressed both of those things throughout. Preaching the gospel is a kind of show and tell activity. And the telling, the, 
the proclamation, the clarifying, the defense is vitally important. We live in a world of competing worldviews. And part of our task is to articulate the Christian faith, to articulate the truth and the superiority of the Christian worldview. And if that sounds too combative to you, it might be good just to remind yourself that this is the way the New Testament speaks about these sorts of issues. The Apostle Paul says it this way, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey, to obey Christ. So maybe just a question for us to think about is, how prepared are we to make a defense to anyone who asks to give a reason for the hope that is within us? Second thing we learn here is that God cannot be contained or controlled. And this is one of the themes that runs throughout Stephen's speech. Now, sometimes if, if I were preaching on a long passage of Scripture, I might do it this way. I might read a paragraph, then make a comment on it or a few comments about it, read the next paragraph, make some more comments, and so on. But Stephen makes the same point in every paragraph of his speech. And the point that he makes is that God cannot be contained or controlled. He's not sort of a localized deity that we, you know, pull out when it's convenient or go to visit when we need something. And I think it was when our girls were, were quite young that an extended family member uh, gave us uh, a children's picture book. It was a storybook. And the book was called something like Sally Goes to Church. It was a well-intentioned gift. I'm sure the author of that book was very well-intentioned in writing it, but it had terrible theology. And I, I don't remember all the details uh, of the story because we only read it once and then <laughs> recycled it or shredded it or whatever we did with it. But the story basically uh, went like this. This is Sally. Sally and her family are getting ready for church. Sally gets dressed up for church. Sally and her family say hi to nice people at church. Sally sings in church. Sally listens to a man talking about God in church. Sally and her family leave. Sam, Sally waves bye-bye God as she leaves church. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous to even to have to say this, but you all know that God does not live in a building we visit on Sundays, Right? And as ridiculous as it is to have to say that, that's actually a big part of what Stephen had to communicate to the religious leaders about the temple. There's a clear outline to Stephen's speech. He surveys four distinct periods of history, of Israel's history. He begins with Abraham, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then concludes with David and Solomon. So let's start with what he says about Abraham. Abraham's story is found in verses 2 to 8, and here's how he begins in verse 2. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. <clears throat> that is significant. 
Now, we might ask, you know, why does Stephen actually begin with Abraham? I mean, since he's going to trace, you know, history, why doesn't he go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden and that sort of thing? Well, you have to think about who Abraham was. We, we call him Father Abraham, right? There's that song. Uh, he was the father of the Jews. He's actually the father of many nations, but the Jews referred to him as our Father Abraham. Now, remember I said to pay attention to the geography of Stephen's speech, and I, I, I think actually as you go through it, location might be more specific than geography, but, but Stephen does begin with a geographical note. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, there was no Israel at this time. There was no nation of Israel at this time, so of course God appeared to him outside of the nation of Israel. Part of God's promise to Abraham was that he was going to give him land. That would be his inheritance for him and his forced generations. And Abraham did not experience the fulfillment of that land promise during his life. But he did experience the presence of God. And the Mesopotamia reference is interesting because part of what Stephen's accusers were saying was that he was blaspheming by speaking against the temple. And I think sometimes we forget just how central the temple was to life in Israel in the first century. It was the center of their life. Even if you lived outside of Jerusalem, you would make a pilgrimage at least once a year to the temple in order to worship God. The temple was the place you went to worship God. But where did Abraham meet God? Or where did God meet Abraham? Well, God met him. God appeared to him. In Mesopotamia, there wasn't a temple or even a tabernacle at this point. On top of that, it's good to remember not just where Abraham was when God appeared to him, but who Abraham was when God appeared to him. You know, lots of people have an idea that Abraham was chosen by God or called by God because of maybe some sort of prior righteousness on his part. He wasn't. He wasn't righteous at all. Listen to what we read in Joshua chapter 24. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham and his family worshipped a multitude of gods before he ever encountered the one true God. And what I want to say is that God is not limited by place, or by a person's past, God cannot be contained and he cannot be controlled. And you see that same thing as we move from Abraham to Joseph. And we find Joseph's story in verses 9 to 16. Verse 9 says this, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So we've moved from Abraham to Joseph. We've moved from Mesopotamia to Egypt. And Stephen didn't want his hearers to miss the Egypt part. In fact, he mentions Egypt six times in the seven verses about Joseph. But notice that Stephen doesn't just say that Joseph was in Egypt, but that he was sold into Egypt and that God was with him in Egypt. And with him, in his slavery, 
When you read the account of Joseph's life in the book of Genesis, you will find that that phrase, that the Lord was with Joseph, is repeated several times. So after he was sold into slavery, he ended up in the house of a man by the name of Potiphar, and here's what was said about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And if you know the story, then you know that you know, after Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances towards Joseph, and Joseph refuses those advances, Joseph is arrested, he's thrown into prison, And here's what we read about Joseph's experience in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So where did Joseph meet God? Or where did God meet Joseph? It wasn't in the tabernacle. It wasn't in the temple. It was in the palace. And it was in the prison in Egypt. God cannot be contained or controlled. So Stephen then moves from Joseph to Moses. And this is the longest section of his speech. It's not surprising since one of the charges against Stephen was that he speaks against Moses and speaks against the law that Moses gave. And Stephen divides the story of Moses into three 40-year sections. He begins by recounting the story of Moses' birth and how he was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He then recounts how, as an adult, uh, Moses tried to intervene in a couple of conflicts, but he had to flee to the land of Midian. Everywhere Moses goes, God goes. Or maybe better, God meets Moses everywhere he goes. Uh, Verses 30 to 33 say this. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God appears to Moses in the wilderness and instructs him to take his sandals off. Because the thing that makes a place holy is the presence of God. So where did Moses meet God? Or where did God meet Moses? It wasn't in the tabernacle. It wasn't in the temple. It was in the wilderness. God cannot be contained or controlled. And then the final section of Stephen's speech deals with the time of David and Solomon. God gave Moses very specific instructions how the tabernacle was supposed to be constructed. The tabernacle was designed in such a way that it would be a symbolic picture of what a relationship with God looks like. It would symbolize the presence of God with his people. Everything in the tabernacle was designed to point people to God. Now, the tabernacle was a temporary structure. The Israelites would literally carry it with them when they moved from one place to another. But when David became king, David had an idea about building a permanent structure. It was to be modeled on the tabernacle, but it was to be permanent. And he built a magnificent temple. But as great as it was, 
no building could ever contain God. And Stephen picks up on that here in verses 48 and following. He says this in verses 48 to 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God doesn't dwell in houses built by human hands. This is why it doesn't matter what kind of a building a church meets in. You know, when we first started this church, I remember having conversations with people. People who would say, you're going to meet in a movie theater? Like, is that, is that okay to do? And my response to that was always the same. Not just any movie theater. The Clova. <laughs> I mean, this place is magnificent. And if you were here in the early days, you will remember. I mean, the sticky floors during worship, you just... You kind of heard that every time you, you moved your feet, that, you know, excess popcorn that was scattered about. Now, look, look, I actually, I mean, I like architecture. I appreciate it. I think church architecture can communicate some things. But God cannot be contained in a building. Not the tabernacle, not the temple, and not a church building. God is present with his people. Now, just a, a brief time out here. Before anyone concludes, well, I guess that means we don't need church. Let me just say that is the wrong conclusion. Yes, God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. But he is present in a special way among his people when they're gathered. In his letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now what you need to know about those verses is that the you in those verses is plural. You, plural, are God's temple singular you together are god's temple this is why we don't come to church we come and gather as the church the point is god cannot be contained now i said god cannot be contained or controlled and i'm not going to spend a lot of time on the controlled part i just want to say we shouldn't miss Stephen's emphasis on God's initiative throughout this passage. It was God who appeared, God who spoke, God who sent, God who promised, God who punished, and God who rescued. And that's a good thing for us to remember about the nature of salvation. All of it comes about because of God's initiative. This actually takes us to the next truth we discover, which is that those who ignore the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. I know that's a well-worn cliche, but it's something you can see really clearly here as Stephen surveys the history of Israel. One of the major themes of his review of Israel's history is the way that God raised up deliverers or saviors for the people, but they were rejected. So let's walk through it again. Think about Joseph. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph... 
sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, the story of Joseph is an amazing story. I mean, there's a reason it became a hit Broadway musical, right? It's a compelling story. I mean, there's lots of twists and turns that take place, lots of mystery and all of that. Just think about the big outline of the story. Joseph has these dreams. And in the dreams, all of Joseph's brothers come and they bow down before him. It, it, it seems like a, a bit of a, a cocky type dream for a young man to have. But that's kind of beside the point. His brothers are all jealous of Joseph, right? Because Joseph is the favored son of the father. And in their jealousy, they find a way to get rid of him. They sell him as a slave. They think that will rid them of their problem. What they don't know is that Joseph is, go- is going to rise to a position of prominence in Egypt And that they're going to experience a great famine. And when they experience that great famine, they are in fact going to come to Joseph and they are going to bow down to him as they beg for bread. The one they rejected becomes the source of their salvation. Does that story sound familiar to you? Think about Moses. Moses is providentially protected after his birth. He grows up in the household of Pharaoh, and when he is grown, he tries to intervene on behalf of his people, but is rejected and is sent away. Has to live as an exile. And listen to what Stephen says about him in verses 35 and 36. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. They rejected Moses, but he became their deliverer. Does that story sound familiar to you? And just in case his hearers didn't understand what Stephen was saying, he said this in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And Jesus is the prophet like Moses in more ways than one. And what you find in Stephen's speech is that God and humanity are remarkably consistent. God keeps raising up prophets in his grace. He sends them to his people to plead with them. But every time they reject those whom he sends. So Stephen summarizes the entire history of Israel in verse 52 by saying this, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Well, that's a pretty sad commentary. It's a pretty sad summary. But actually, Stephen is not saying anything that the prophets who came before him had not said. Listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Or think about what Jesus said as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Now what Stephen says to the religious leaders here is actually filled with grace. Now maybe it didn't sound like grace to those who heard it. Maybe it doesn't sound like grace to you as you hear it today. But it is. Here's what Stephen said in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, I know you hear that. You say, that doesn't sound anything like grace, Lee. It is grace. Because there is an appeal that Stephen is making when he says that. Joseph was God's deliverer, and he was rejected. Moses was God's prophet, and he was rejected. Jesus was God's redeemer, and he was rejected and killed. So so what comes next? Who comes next? Stephen comes next, and he is standing before them. He is telling them the truth. He is telling them how they can be saved from God's wrath. He's warning them what will happen if they continue down the path that their fathers walked. Continue down the path they've already started going by arresting Stephen. And he calls them stiff-necked, you stiff-necked people. Jeremiah said that. The book of Proverbs contains a warning about those who remain stiff-necked in the face of clear warnings. In Proverbs 29, it says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And what Stephen is telling them is not to ignore the lessons of history. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And if they do, they will suddenly be broken beyond healing. But they do ignore the lessons of history Not to go all spoiler alert on you, but they see Stephen, they stone him to death. We'll cover that next week. But but this actually has application for us as well. We need to make sure that we don't repeat the errors of history. We need to make sure that we don't reject the one who God raised up for our salvation. John gives us this brilliant summary of the gospel in John chapter 1. Here's what he says of Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John divides the world into two categories. Those who reject Jesus and those who receive Jesus. Which one describes you? Final thing we should understand from this passage is that God's servants shouldn't be surprised by trouble. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that doing what God asks us to do will seldom earn the world's applause. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, Stephen, did any of them not encounter opposition? And so I say this just by way of reminder. We all want to be liked. We all want to be well thought of. 
we all want our lives to be filled with kind of smooth waters. We don't want any trouble. You know, you haven't had a football reference in like three weeks. So <laughs> let me remedy that. It is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, a few weeks back, the Buffalo Bills, we've got some fans down here, I know, uh, were playing the Kansas City Chiefs in, the, in the, a chance to go to the AFC Championship game. It was a close game. I think Buffalo should have won. And there was a play in the fourth quarter of that game that will surely go down as one of the all-time head scratchers. Bills had the ball. It was fourth and five. They were in their own end of the field. And typically what you're going to do in that situation is you're going to punt the ball to the other team. The Bills lined up for a punt, but they faked the punt. They snapped the ball directly to DeMar Hamlin. He tried to run for the first down, didn't get it. Now, DeMar Hamlin is most famous for experiencing cardiac arrest and collapsing on the field in the middle of a game last season. It was amazing he was able to come back at all this year. He saw limited action on the field, was really only in for a a few, a limited number of snaps. He actually plays on defense. And all of those things are part of the reason this play call was such a head scratcher. Football analysts couldn't make heads or tails of it. What was the coach thinking? The best explanation I saw came from one random tweeter who said, I think the coach thinks it's a Disney movie. I mean, in a Disney movie, that'd be a great script, right? In a Disney movie, the guy who basically comes back from the dead, you know, makes the the great play of the game. But football, like life, is not a Disney movie. That, that's actually become part of my vocabulary. Anytime someone starts to complain about reality, right? I just want to break in with, hey, this is not a Disney movie, princess. <laughs> if you expect living the Christian life in this world to be a Disney movie, you're going to be greatly disappointed. God's servants are not exempt from trouble. Everyone in this passage experienced trouble. Jesus told us plainly, in this world, you will have trouble. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, I know you're, you're all super encouraged at this moment. But there is some encouragement to be found here. And I'm going to just very quickly point you to two things that should encourage us when we encounter this kind of trouble. The first one is to remember that this actually puts us in good company. Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You believe that? A few weeks back, we read this description of the apostles after they were arrested, beaten, and then released. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. So the first thing is it puts us in good company. The second piece of encouragement comes from the fact that God is with us in the midst of our troubles. I mean, God has given us this promise. Multiple times in the pages of the Bible, we read, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We could think of David saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. 
I've already highlighted the way that that theme runs through Stephen's speech. If we take Joseph as an example, God isn't just with us in the palace. He's with us in the prison. And we ought to take great comfort from that. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that we can look, on, look back on thousands of years of history. That you have remained the same gracious God appealing to people again and again to take the offer of salvation that you give. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, reflect on, on that truth, as we reflect on the fact that we, together as your body meet together, we are in your presence, we pray we take great comfort from your presence with us in all situations. It would be our comfort in life and in death. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.